Well, we are in the uh, middle of a series called uh, Deeply Misunderstood Bible Passages, and uh, today we have a doozy, and um, we're going to walk through it. It's actually very familiar. I hear this one quoted on Sports Center and all sorts of other things out there, and yet it seems to confound everyone. So, um, actually, let me do this to you now that you've had your long rest. Stand back up and let's read the gospel. And uh, I'm going to read it and then I'm going to have you jump in on the line that we're going to talk about here, okay? And I'll tell you when. So, let me go here. The Pharisees went out, laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, And join me. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. All right, have a seat. In all my years of ministry, this has got to be one of the most commonly misunderstood and misused Bible passages. And the old King James, perhaps you've heard it this way, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Most often these words of Jesus are used to say that a Christ follower should split their politics apart from their faith. Do not be political, is how this tends to be understood. Stay out of politics. Let Caesar do Caesar's thing, and you do God's thing. Separate church and state, Caesar and God. This passage is misunderstood more than likely because there's some critical historical information that's missing that we just don't see in the text. Uh, you can kind of actually pick up on it if you're kind of reading along. You're like, what in the world is going on? I've never seen a denarius or any of the rest of the stuff. So there's some, there's some things here that we need to understand. Two main historical points, because the text actually says that everyone's astonished. And when you read this, you're like, well, it's not very snappy. I mean, it's interesting, but it, I wouldn't really call it a, astonishing. Why were they so astonished? What's going on? So here's the two points that we have to understand to make sense of the passage. First, there's the coin. We have a picture of the coin, I think. Uh, There is the coin. The coin is a silver denarius. I think we have that picture. Is that right? Um, It's a silver denarius. It's a Roman coin. On the front, the obverse is the head of Caesar. And the words, Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus. The Roman Senate bestowed divinity upon Augustus and adopted Uh, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, the original great leader of the Roman Empire. Now, to a Jew, you have to hear these words, son of the divine Augustus, you know, and he's supposed to be a divine being. To a Jew, this is obviously idolatry. You can go run right back to the Ten Commandments there in Exodus, uh, several places, Exodus 20. A clear violation of the core beliefs, the first two commandments, you know, no other gods, no idols. 
And here it is. Matter of fact, if you look back at Hebrew uh, illustrations, they, even when they wanted to show a picture of a human being, they wouldn't put their face on them. They'd use a bird, like a hawk's head on a human being. So when you see ancient Hebrew things, and you're like, why they got a bird on there? It looks like some Egyptian deal. Like, it's because they weren't going to put anybody's image out there. That's how big of a deal this was. So here, Caesar's got his face on the coin that they all have to carry around because it's the currency of the kingdom. On the back side of the coin, though, it even gets worse. There's the Roman goddess, Livia, the goddess of peace, and the words Pontifex Maximus, high priest. High priest. Can you imagine a Jew carrying around a coin that has the divine son of God on one side and the high priest on the other side, Caesar? All blasphemy to them. Caesar is not a god. He's not a high priest. He's not even a son of God. Livia is not a goddess, especially of Roman peace, because we all know that Pax Romana was peace at the end of a spear. (laughs) And that's not shalom in a Hebrew world. Shalom is where everyone is prosperous. And Pax Romana was, if you don't do what we say, there's not going to be peace. And so we have a solution. Matter of fact, in Jesus' day, when he was a boy, there was a tax revolt in Israel, and the Romans, just as a show of force, and the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, crucified publicly 1,000 Jews, strung them up on crosses as you walked into town. There you go, there's your Pax Romana. Now, this brings us then to our second point that we need to know in order to understand this passage. Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto God that which is God's. And the words are not original to Jesus. He did not make these up. He modified them, but he didn't make them up. 200 years earlier, in a very famous Jewish event, there was a revolt. And it was led by the high priest, the Jewish priest, Mattathias Maccabeus. It was the Maccabean revolt in 166 to 163 B.C. And Mattathias Maccabeus, the father of the Maccabean brothers, was asked by Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the general that happened to be running over Israel for the umpteenth time at that time, back 200 years earlier, foreign general, running over the Holy Land. He was asked, the high priest, Maccabeus, was asked to sacrifice in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple a sacrifice to the Greek gods. Can you imagine monotheists like Jews being forced to sacrifice to Greek gods by their high priest in the most holy place where the high priest only goes once a year? Incredible. Mattathias not only refused, standing there with the general and the other officials, he not only refused, but then he pulled out a sword and killed one of the officials right there and ran out and said these words, pay back the Gentiles what they deserve and give attention to the command of the law. And from that day forward, if you were a Jew and you wanted to resist whoever was oppressing you at the time, whether it's the Greeks or the Jews or the Assyrians or something like that, you would say, give back to the Gentiles what they deserve, which is a sword, and give the law its full due, the Torah. So when Jesus quotes the Maccabean revolt of 200 years earlier, every Jew knew exactly what he meant when he said these words. 
and how he was modifying them, ever so slightly, but very shrewdly. What did Jesus mean? Nowadays, when people want to use the words of Jesus to say uh, at least a couple of popular ideas, popular ideas. One, people quote, render to Caesar what is Caesar's to mean, let's keep a strong separation of church and state, especially, of course, in America, where this is part of our constitution. Keep a strong separation. The, other, uh, the others quote Jesus here to say, well, just the opposite. What we really need is a Christian nation. This country was founded on Christian moral principles, and we need to, you know, make it God's. You hear that? Every foot so often in the paper and magazines, you'll run across an article like this. In one phrase, Jesus is saying, Tiberius is not a god, nor is he divine, so give him his silly coin. It is nothing. He is nothing. I have renounced it. I don't need to be burdened by the Roman Empire. Both Tiberius and his tribute coin have no power to rule over us. There is a power greater. On the other hand, Jesus is saying, God is the only one true God. There is only one. And the Lord God will judge Tiberius and, and here comes the punchy part, and he is going to judge you religious leaders and Pharisees who are trying to trap me right now for idolatry and blasphemy. And we don't quite get that when we read the text, but that's exactly what was astonishing to them. And everyone backs off saying, not only is he offending the Roman Empire, he just offended all of our leaders. The man is crazy. Who dares come back against him? Because all the people said, Maccabeus. We could do it. And yet Jesus leaves them scratching their heads saying, no sword though? Where's the revolt? How are you going to do that? And no one, to, no one knew what to do with him. So is Jesus political or apolitical, non-political? Well, he's both. <laughs> Obviously, he was put to death for political reasons. This sign right here that floats around this uh, soul sanctuary uh, says, is a little copy that we made up of the, in the three languages. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, king of the Jews. And this is what was nailed above the cross, above his head, that the Pharisees, those same Pharisees, came by and said, tear that down, he's not our king. Oh, which, by the way, the day before they capitulated and said, Caesar's our only king. When every Jew would ever call God king. Oh, the irony. And Pilate said, I'm not tearing down the sign. That's what happens to any of you who want to make yourself out to be a king, you get crucified. Well, he was certainly killed for political reasons now, wasn't he? Any sign hanging over his head that says a political title of king, he is killed for a political reason. Pretty easy. Doesn't get much more telling than that. But Jesus was also not political in the usual sense because he didn't play the political games of the day. This is what we must think hard about this morning, 2,000 years later. Should Christ followers play politics or separate our faith from politics and government? And you will find people in this room who will say one or the other in some combination or some other version of this. 
if we follow Jesus' lead, it is impossible to build towards the kingdom of God here on earth and not stand up on sometimes to governments and government policies and laws that hurt people that Jesus stands up for. It is impossible to, to be non-political as a Christian because governments will eventually and economic policies will eventually get around to invading upon moral ground. As one powerful Christian these days says, government budgets are, are, are uh, political statements, are moral statements too. They're moral statements. How do we know? How do we know which things Jesus would defend these days? Now we kind of get into the, you know, which side of the aisle are you on? How do we know? How would we do this? How do we decide? Well, allow me, uh, Scott, can we get the, Chris, can I get the white marker board, please? Let me illustrate a point, and I don't know if this is going to confuse you or not. I hope it doesn't, but I've kind of found it that I've been chewing on this since 2008. I find this revealing about how conservative evangelical Christians, like us, tend to divide sins into two sides, okay? And you may argue with me about whether or not these are sins or not, and that's a whole other discussion that I don't really care to have. Uh, it's more the illustration um, than the rest of it. Okay, so here we got, uh, and I guess for podcast reasons, there are two figures of a human being on the white marker board, and then there's a long list of what go down as sins, all right? And perhaps they're a little hard to see. But on the left side, we have homosexuality, abortion, stem cell research. I just threw that in. You know, I'm the one who made these up. I didn't get these off the internet or anything. So if I miss your favorite sin, then I, I'm sorry. But stem cell research, pornography, HIV, AIDS, I just lumped it in there, human trafficking, might as well say human sex trafficking, gay marriage, sex education in schools, you know, and let's... I don't know, throw creationism on there and stuff or whatever else. On the right side, homelessness, payday loans. You know, the, you know it's legal to have thousands of percent for a payday loan, right? And we issued a petition around here last year trying to get this as legislation. And the payday loan lobbyist came in to Jeff City and shot the whole thing down. And they invalidated most of the, a lot of the signatures on the petition to throw the petition out. So we tried. Payday loans. Guess you know where we're all stand on that one now, don't you? Uh, child labor. Like, you know, the kids who made your sneakers. Um, hunger and famine. Poverty. Fair housing. Insurance. Let's say medical insurance. Obamacare. Immigration. Third world debt. There's the left side. Let's see. Yeah, there's the left side and there's the right side. Okay. What do you notice about these two classifications that I've drawn up? I would say, and this is me, my opinion, I would say these on this side, the homosexuality and abortion and all the rest of that go with it, tend to be sins that are inside your skin. Inside their private personal sins, in other words. They are sins of, 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 you want to put your skin as a boundary, which you should have your skin as a boundary, by the way. That's what you need to tell all of your children. Your skin is your boundary. All right, anyway... All of these sins are inside. These other ones over here, homelessness, payday loans, hunger, poverty, housing, insurance, and all the rest of this, they tend to go down as public policy, tend to be sins of outside the skin. You tracking with me? Now, you don't have to agree with me, but this is kind of the way I see it. 
I mean, you know, you can move these like, well, now, wait a second. Human trafficking, isn't that kind of an economic thing? And what about pornography? Doesn't that make money? Like, okay, okay, it's going to get gray here. And you can slide these things back and forth. But in general, you get my drift, that what you really have going on is on this side, you have sins of sex or sexuality. And on this side, you tend to have sins of money or economic. Yes? This is something we're talking about. So from my growing up and the Christians that I would be lumped in with, we tend to focus on the sins that are on the left side, the sins within the skin. And then those go out into public policy. And so we get into, you know, abortion's wrong and constitutional amendment, Roe v. Wade and things like that, okay, during my lifetime and probably your lifetime. Those are the sins inside the skin, and they're private and personal moral sins, or some like to say the sins in the bedroom, okay? Certainly the Bible has a lot to say about personal sin, no doubt about it. There is such a thing as personal sin, sins within the skin, lying and cheating, all the rest of it, right? You say, well, it affects other people, like, okay, but you get what I mean. Certainly the Bible has a lot to say about this, but the Bible also has so much to say about social and economic and what we might call political sin. So much to say about this. So when we say the treatment of undocumented workers, or what I tend to want to call refugees, economic refugees, when, when we say the treatment of undocumented workers is wrong, there's a pushback that says social justice is not in the Bible. This is what I've heard and been told. Social justice is not in the Bible. I'm like, you're telling me that justice is not in the Bible. I don't even know how to respond to that. Justice is not in the Bible. Okay. You mean that it disagrees with your politics? That might be more accurate. This, is too, is what I've been told by serious-minded Christians, very devout Christians, that justice isn't in there. Notice this as well. The list of sins on the right, those sins that are outside the skin, you know, tend to involve things about money. They're economic. And I find it curious that a good many biblical Christians believe it is wrong to get involved politically with these sins. And I just find it curious that they tend to be economic ones as opposed to the sins inside the skin. And I can't help but feel that call to stay out of politics might just be a smokescreen, and here I'm going to get rather uh, pointed, uh, to say, just keep your hands off my money. More than that, if you only focused on private sins, and here I'm making a big leap, more than likely, in your theology, your theology of justification and atonement and salvation is probably entirely and only a personal salvation that an individual inside their skin gets saved which is certainly true but that's it we are only saving individual souls and that there would be therefore no salvation or ramifications of salvation for an entire community or society or culture in other words the skin is the boundary of salvation and it stays inside of you 
But the Old Testament, pick it up, and you can just do a drop anywhere in it and start reading pretty soon, and you will find it talking about culture. Even when someone sins personally and privately, the entire community pays for it and is responsible for it. Personal private sin is always construed and seen as social sin. And we have the same thing going on in Jesus' time. So what can we say about politics and government policies? Well, for starters, for starters, any policy that is driven by fear is contrary to the sovereignty of God. And you're like, well, well, most of government's driven, our Constitution's driven by the fear of King George. I'm like, okay. I'm just saying it's contrary to the most common phrase in the Bible that says, do not fear. Do not fear. 134 times in Scripture it says, do not fear. Why? Because there's God. I'm not saying the policy's wrong. I'm just saying it's contrary to the sovereignty of God. Any politics that's driven by hatred and anger and revenge is wrong and contrary to the mind of God. Call me simplistic and call me idealistic. I'm getting more that way the older I get. But you know, these things are contrary to the heart of a trustworthy God who doesn't hate you, isn't angry at you, and wants the best for you. Any policy that oppresses the poor and the voiceless is not of the one that came to be with us that was laid in a food trough born to a peasant girl of the most impoverished class, came from the backwaters of the Roman Empire, and was crucified for your sake and mine upon a cross by the most powerful force on the planet at his time. And even when he was asked by Pontius Pilate, the most powerful man in his region, don't you have anything to say, Jesus, in your defense? He just kept his mouth shut. Over 200 years ago, there was a peaceful, quiet, Quaker man named John Woolman. Anybody here? Raise your hand, really. Have you heard of John Woolman? Yeah, look around. Like, nobody knows John Woolman. And I think he would like it that way. He was a Quaker, a quietist, around 1750. John Woolman is one of the uh, instrumental people in the formation of America. John Woolman, a Quaker, went around the colonies in his job. He could read and write, and he wrote up legal documents and so forth. He went around speaking personally, individually, and privately to slave owners, saying, if you examine your conscience, sir, I think you will find that enslaving another human being is contrary to your soul. He was not confrontational. He didn't get up and make a big rant and give speeches. He simply went around and by reason of conscience talked to slave owners. And more often than not, they released and freed their slaves. He wrote a very famous book in English literature called The Journal. Another snappy title. John Woolman's The Journal. His demeanor was so winsome and non-confrontational that he freed many slaves during his time. 
all before we had a constitution. Oh, the things they would say to woman. You don't understand economics. You don't understand policies. You don't understand the way the world works. You don't understand England and its need for sugar and molasses and tea. And you don't understand the East India Company. You're just a simple little Quaker from Pennsylvania. What would you know about these sort of things? And the answer comes back. When you find somebody with your, their hand in the cookie jar, there's no real need for complicated arguments. We come to a moment then of profession, of confession. <laughs> but it's really a profession, a professing of something. We come to the Lord's table today. It's not just a religious ritual. The table is a statement of belonging to Jesus and his church. Some of you come perhaps even for the first time or you're thinking about it right now. You've never done this. Some of you will stay in your seat and that's fine. You're at Lakeland. But you may come even for the first time, and you'll come with a score of questions and unanswered questions, things involving politics, but other loftier theological things like how do you know there's a God even? I remember years ago, a young skeptic stood up and came forward and received the bread and the cup, and in that moment, he became a follower of Jesus. I would encourage you to begin to act in something that you don't know about and see what happens if you're a skeptic as well. Maybe nothing, but maybe a moment of profession. You'll never know unless you try. And to you devout Christians, perhaps you've been splitting up your Bible. Perhaps you've been splitting it up. Years ago, I heard of a man that in his small group, they took a Bible and they took three years and they cut out with a, with a scissors and a razor blade every verse in the Bible that talked about money and the poor. When they got done, there was about a quarter of the Bible left. They literally cut it out. And perhaps some of us have been cutting out parts of Scripture because it's not convenient to our politics or how we like to live and especially, of course, our money. I'd like to invite you to come and do business with God. I can't tell you how to vote or what to think about all this sort of thing. I can simply say, I think the Scripture is saying more than most people like me in my Christian upbringing ever were taught. I have come to believe that conversion never stops. We are constantly in a process of turning over parts of our life to Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's very uncomfortable. And we have to make major shifts. Perhaps it's time for you to stand up to your own comforts and step out for the sake of others. Examine it. And I'll just simply say this. I didn't begin to really think seriously about this until I began to go on solitude and retreats some 15 years ago. And I know it sounds high and mighty and all holy and beatific, but when I would sit at the feet of Jesus, I began to gain a heart of compassion for the poor. Before that, it was all about saving souls. I'm just saying. Perhaps it's time for you to stand up because I have another reason. And that other reason in this moment of profession is because I have a daughter and a son. A 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 10-year-old son. 12-year-old daughter. And I would love for them to be surrounded by people 
who have a heart to follow Jesus and hold nothing back. Christians, Christians who have not split their world in the various parts. Because I don't want my children, nor your children, to be walking around this planet having some sort of little hidden religion that never has anything to do with their normal everyday life. That's just playing church. And we're not going to do that around here. Not as long as I'm around here. Or at least I'll keep saying something. If anybody does, it's another thing. I don't know if some band needs to come up or whatever right now, but would you stand with me and let us pray, and we'll prepare for the table right now. And during this time, I'd ask that you would uh, consider these words, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's. Let us pray. Holy Father, you are a God who loves us, and you love us unconditionally. We don't need to win your favor. We don't need to earn the right. We don't need to do enough to come into your salvation and your grace. You don't, you don't save us, God, because you have to, because of some theological point that you made up. You, you save us, God, and because you like us, even with all of our mess. You like us no matter what our politics are. You like us no matter what we do or don't do with our money or with our life, or with our time, or with our hobbies, or our televisions, or anything else. You just love us. May we profess, Lord, as we come forward, that we simply want to receive this grace, and bend a knee to you, and submit to you, and say, I am yours as much as I can today. What you see is what you get. May I be yours. May I... May I just feel your presence and own it and confess you, Jesus Christ. Amen. So on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he handed it to his disciples. He said, eat this. This is my body, which is broken for you. I'm giving everything up for you. And likewise, after supper, he gave thanks for the cup and he said, drink this. This is all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. I'm starting something entirely new. Drink it and you'll belong to me. That's what they professed. Come whenever you're ready. Stand with me, please. <clears throat> Lord, you have fed us with spiritual food. You've laid out a feast before us that is called this life. May we enjoy every moment. May this day be within us and without us. Wherever we go, may we see your presence and may we wash out into the world and express your love and be grateful and not fearful. May we feel your smile upon us as you turn your face towards us and we say, I belong to you because of Jesus Christ. And we all said, amen. Go in peace, everyone.